Welcome to the Scholars and Storytellers podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers at UCLA. This episode, recorded on July 25th, 2021, is titled Masculinity, Mental Health, and Gaming, with Dr. Gary Barker, Dr. Michael Kaufman, and Dr. Wisden Powell, moderated by Sheena Brevi. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. Today's topic is masculinity, mental health, and gaming. My name is Sheena Brevig. I am a junior fellow at the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, where we bridge the gap between scholars and storytellers to support positive youth development. CSS offers research-based actionable insights for authentic and inclusive content for audiences ages 10 to 25. I am a social impact filmmaker and relationship and communication coach with a background in neuroscience. And I'm currently through CSS working on developing a parent focused workshop around positive masculinity. And I'm working on it with another junior fellow. Um, And we are creating it based off of our boys tip sheet. I'm really passionate about using science and storytelling to advocate for mental health and disability awareness, particularly in my communities of LGBTQ plus and Asian. And I will be moderating this conversation today. Now, to introduce our incredible guests, these three individuals have done so much amazing work. And so I will try to just share highlights with you all, but there is a lot there. So I am excited to introduce all three of them. So first, we have Dr. Gary Barker, who is the CEO and founder of ProMundo, which started in Brazil and has now worked for 20 years in more than 40 countries to promote healthy masculinities. Gary is co-founder of MenCare, a global campaign to promote men's involvement as caregivers. He is co-author of numerous studies on men and masculinities, including the International Men and Gender Equality Survey, which is the largest ever survey of men's attitudes and behaviors. In 2017, he was named by Apolitical as one of the 20 most influential people in gender policy around the world. He is the author of four novels published by the European publisher, World Editions, based mostly on his work in conflict areas. Thank you, Gary, for being here. Next, we have Dr. Michael Kaufman, who for four decades has been an advisor, activist, and writer engaging men to support women's rights and violence against women and positively transform the lives of men. He is the author or editor of nine books, both fiction and nonfiction. He has worked in 50 countries with the United Nations, governments, corporations, trade unions, NGOs, and women's organizations. He served Canada and France on their respective G7 gender equality advisory councils. His most recent books are The Time Has Come, Why Men Must Join the Gender Equality Revolution, and A Mystery, The Last Exit. And then thirdly, we have Dr. Wisdom Powell. Wisdom is a tenured professor, a nationally recognized expert and thought leader on masculinities and male health. She serves on and leads several national advisory councils on fatherhood and health disparities in boys and men. Wisdom is also a fellow for the White House, Ford Foundation, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Aspen Institute Health Innovator, and is an awardee of the American Psychological Association's Distinguished Professional Award. She has been published in numerous journals of public health, medicine, behavioral medicine, and child development. Her work has notably advanced the national public conversation around masculinity, especially among racial ethnic minority males. Her scientific research has been covered by CNN, Business Insider, The Washington Post, Huffington Post, NPR, Vox, Forbes, and that's actually only naming a few. So we are really, really fortunate to have these three incredible people joining us in this conversation. Again, today's topic is on masculinity, mental health, and gaming. And the gaming industry and gamers have been around for ages, and this industry only continues to grow. Recently, there's been news of Netflix expanding into gaming as another form of content that they're going to be sharing with subscribers. So I wouldn't be surprised then to see if, you know, other streamers followed suit. So for those of us who aren't already gamers, it seems like the gaming world is going to be more prominent in everyone's lives. So I'm uh, really excited for this conversation and, and feel it's so important. So Wisdom, I would love to start with you and have you help put some context, put some of these terms and concepts into context for us for this conversation. 
So how does toxic masculinity impact male mental and physical health? And how do gender norms play into that? So I really appreciate the question. And first, I just want to say how honored I am to be sharing this, the virtual stage with Michael and Gary, whose work has really helped me grow and stretch and um, really expand uh, my understanding of masculinities as they affect men around the world. So just want to say that. And then I want to start by acknowledging that the term toxic masculinity really originated during uh, a period of the men's movement, like between 1980 and 1990. And I actually learned that the term was coined by Shepard Bliss. And he uh, coined that term really to characterize his father's militarized authoritarian masculinity. And I think it's important that we understand how the term originated, because now I'm going to say that I actually don't prefer using the term. And I'll tell you why. I think that when we talk about masculinity as toxic, that we set up a, a, a message that can be received by boys and men as sort of labeling and overly pathologizing who they are. In, in fact, I think that when men hear the term toxic masculinity, they can sometimes feel that all mas men are inherently irreparably toxic. When in fact, I think the message about masculinities is much more positive than that. And I believe that many of my colleagues and folks in this room share that perspective um, because men and boys are dynamic, adaptive human beings capable of a broad range of behaviors and emotions. They're cisgendered, trans, bisexual, black, indigenous, and come from communities of color. So our definitions also keep men trapped in the so-called man box that Gary and Pramundo so talk about so eloquently. Men are not uh, stereotypes or ideologies. They're individuals um, with unique lived experiences, cultures, races, and, and ethnicities. And so when we talk about this term as, as sort of a blanket way of describing men and how they show up in the world, I think it reduces them to the same stereotypes that we work so fervently to, um, to rail against. Now, with that in mind, there is a plethora of evidence linking masculinities in the plural to male health outcomes. The data are fairly consistent in that they note that men who rigidly adhere to norms around masculinity that encourage them to be strong, stoic, and silent, to suppress emotion, to soldier on in the face of tremendous adversity, when men rigidly hold to, to definitions that discourage emotional vulnerability, that discourage help-seeking and making connections with others, then we see the kinds of negative health outcomes that we all know exist, such as poor mental health, mostly represented by increased depressive symptomatology or anxiety. We see increased interpersonal violence. We also see even more pronounced chronic disease um, escalation. And what I mean by that is that there's a connection between emotion suppression, for example, habitual emotion suppression and cardiovascular health. And so we know that if you are a habitual emotion suppressor, that you're more at risk for having higher, um, you're more at risk for cardiovascular, negative cardiovascular outcomes. I won't name them all because we don't have enough time on this call. So I think we, we want to acknowledge that those um, possibilities exist, but the data that we have been collecting um, from Black men around the globe, particularly in the U.S., has sort of turned that, that, that connection on its head because we found in some of our papers that actually when Black men adhere to definitions of masculinity that encourage self-reliance and self-determination, that they actually are less likely to, to delay getting health screenings that we know prevent the onset of more serious chronic disease. So I think that we need to be having a more nuanced conversation. Gary's heard me talk about this a lot. And I think we, we do what Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie warned against is that we tell these single stories about masculinities and its impact on male health. And I think that we need more nuanced conversation because the good news is that the men are redefining masculinities in very positive terms. And Black men and boys have been doing that forever. They've had to because the definitions of masculinities that we all um, hold so dear weren't designed with them in mind and didn't elicit their input to create them. So Black men have been redefining how they show up in the world 
Um, and I would gather that if we look towards Black, Indigenous, and men of color, we might see more nuanced, robust definitions of masculinities. And we might see some of those paradoxical findings that I lifted up that link masculinities to health outcomes. Wow, that was all so fascinating and amazing. Um, thank you. Thank you, Wisdom. I, I want to keep just asking questions specifically to that. But Gary, I'll jump to you. Um, since you recently conducted a study around gaming and masculinity, can you tell us a little bit about your findings? Yeah, we um, what we did together with the Gina Davis Institute researchers from both Promundo and, and Gina Davis Institute um, looked at both at the content of Twitch, so the largest single gaming platform there. We did a nationwide survey with young men on their practices of gaming. And we also analyzed what was going on in the chat room with 20 of the top streamers and the content of the chat room. Um, we, you know, what we call the, the, the study itself or our, kind of our headline for it is it, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, um, two thirds of young men told us that they can be their true selves in a gaming platform more than they can in whatever you want to call it, analog life. Um, so we have to say, you know, what's, what's going on there that you can be, you know, something that feels closer to who you really are in a space like that. What we think is that young men are finding lots of companionship and camaraderie and ways to connect. 40% um, told us they feel less lonely when they play, um, when they're on a gaming platform. And yet if we look at what's in the content, um, we have to be very concerned. Both the sexualization of female characters who, when they show up at all, it is mostly white male characters who carry out much more violence, um, often against characters of color. Um, so you end up with a lot of scripts that reinforce a violent version of manhood carried out against, and then comments that happen in chat rooms that happen to be um, misogynist, sexist, racist, ableist. Um, of the 20 top streamers, um, one is a man of color, one is LGBT, um, Q+. So you know you end up with a with a world that says um, a normal space of masculinity is is where we use a huge amount of violence, and yet we do have to ask ourselves what are we doing to create safer places? And I think what wisdom just commented of if you feel the world says you know you as male are inherently bad, um, this you know partly artificial world becomes a place where you feel well nobody is is calling out my masculinity. Nobody is asking, you know, how's that manhood going for you on these spaces? I can feel safer, at ease. Nobody's calling me out. Now, the bad thing, of course, is that we do need gentle and sometimes more direct calling out um, to call young men and adult men into conversations about how can we be better humans, um, our care for each other, our care for others, all the wisdom just said about how we um, our, our, the need to care for our bodies better, but also to care for others. And so I think as we look, um, as we look at the gaming world, we've got to understand that during COVID even more so, um, one survey, it wasn't ours, another survey found that more than 80% of global consumers um, spent more time on online gaming platforms during COVID than they did before. Um, so we know it's a huge amount of, of a space where young men in particular hang out. Um, girls and young women are also hanging out, and there are now new platforms that are, you know, that are trying to market to, um, to young women. So it's not exclusively a male space, but the male-dominated spaces are particularly harmful. Um, and we also use that the the nomenclature that Wisdom cited before of the man box, and we analyze kind of how much behaviors and comments fit into the man box, and frighteningly. Um, about 60% of the chat comments were reinforcing harmful ideas about manhood. Um, so I think, you know, it, it sobers us to have to look at those findings. And yet I think, you know, one piece that we've got to think about is three quarters in the survey told us that if you're not part of the gaming world, um, you don't understand what gaming means to us. And I think as we think about work with young men, I think we've got to go in with that degree of don't slam me about this until you understand and until you come in with a sense of empathy toward you know why why I'm here and what I'm doing here. So I think it, it does kind of throw a big challenge before us. Hi listeners, we hope that you're enjoying this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. 
The Center for Scholars and Storytellers is an organization dedicated to bridging the gap between scholars and storytellers to promote positive youth development. Are you interested in learning more about the other projects we are working on? Check out our website at scholarsandstorytellers.com and find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Scholars and Storytellers. Now, back to the conversation. Yeah, this really is an incredible space and sounds like there's a lot of potential. There was also a study by Microsoft looking at this kind of the, during COVID times that found that 84% of the respondents agreed that gaming had positively impacted their mental health. And 71% said gaming helped them feel less isolated. So going to your point about, you know, feeling more connected. Michael, I would love to throw this to you, kind of thinking about how how can gaming promote positive mental health? We've heard kind of, there's a, it's a very much a mixed bag, but how are we see, seeing that gaming is promoting positive mental health? You know, I, I do think it's a mixed bag. And I think, you know, it's it's... It's hard to talk about that without also talking about some of the negative consequences or what it represents. You know, and we, let's take it back. I mean, the first thing that, that I think um, both Wisdom and Gary have referred to is um, one of the things that comes with our dominant ideals of manhood is a tremendous amount of fear. I mean, I've often think of, uh, of our hegemonic ideals of masculinity as a fear-based construction. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, it's it, it, we set out these ideals and expectations that none of us can live up to. You know, none of us will ever be strong enough, heroic enough, etc., enough um, to to live up to those ideals. And so we grow up, particularly when we're young, particularly in our you know preteen, early teen, through our teen years, with this sense of of, of real fear of being called out, being discovered by other boys, particularly, as not really fitting into, not being a real, quote, real man, not living up to these expectations. And so we have to work incredibly hard to prove ourselves um, as men. And, and so a lot of the negative behaviors that, uh, that, that we know about um, uh, come from this, this, this almost at times desperate need to, to prove to ourselves and prove to other men and, or boys uh, that we really, we fit in, that we are, you know, we're one of the boys, we're one of the gang. You know, gaming, you know, you could say has a positive, within that context, you know, can have a positive space because it's a real equalizer. I mean, you're, 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 cohab you're co-inhabiting a fantasy world. I mean, you know, a gaming world is a fantasy world. And so, you know, if, if, you're, if you're stepping onto, um, uh, you know, a football field or a basketball court or um, a classroom uh, or a lab uh, with other real people, if, if you don't live up to those expectations, you're going to be seen right away. I mean, you can't, you can't bluff it uh, on a football field. Um, you can't bluff it, well, some, some people can, in a classroom. With, with gaming, it, it, it is, by definition, it, it's, a, it's, it's a fantasy world. And that's part of what's wonderful about it. We all need fantasy in our lives. We, we, we need to create worlds that, that give us a sense of possibility. Um, and so, in a way, it's a way for boys to negotiate uh, that sense of insecurity. Um, that, 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 you know, and, and when, you, when you look at a group of, 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 of young boys who are watching a friend, uh, they're focusing not on each other, they're focusing on this external object. So it becomes a real safe space. So you can say on one level that's, that's a really positive thing. It's a creation of a safe space for negotiating relations among, among particularly young men and boys. On the other hand, the sad thing for me is that we need that in the first place. The sad thing for me is that we have these expectations um, that you know get met in you know in in in, in a in a virtual world in, in a in, in fantasy spaces. And I'm someone who writes fiction. I love fantasy spaces. I you know it's it's not a, a totally negative picture for me. But for me, there's also this. Um, I guess you could say there, there's this, this worry. And I think part of the attraction when we think about gaming in particular and it gives it its potency is that word potency. That, you know, it get, part of, you know, when we think of all the definitions of manhood, the bottom line is having power. Having power over yourself, over your own emotions, having power over other men, having power over women, having power over society, having power. And so when we think of the number of, of games uh, that are constructed around the, you know, some sort of exercise of power, 
um, that that makes can make them very gratifying. You feel um, you feel that omnipotence. I remember I got into one uh, you know one game many years ago. Now I had gone through a, a breakup. This is uh, you know back in the I think it was EverQuest or something back in the the early '90s. I'd gone through a breakup. I was feeling really crappy about myself and. And you know, I started playing this game for a while, and suddenly you have power. You can define your world. You can feel omnipotent, and in a way, it's it's satisfying. But on, on another hand, you think, "Wow, there's there, there's a problem here that that, that we need that." Yeah, the, that idea around control and power um, is really it seems like a very human, innate kind of ego-driven um, desire. I also wanted to add wisdom, Gary, if you know, Michael as well, if any of you have any comments off of something that someone else has said, please unmute. And, you know, this is a conversation. So I wanted to give you both a chance if anything has come up in what everyone has been saying. And well, I really started. appreciate Yeah, Yeah, I, this is wisdom. And I thank you, Michael, that was so both you and Gary provided so much insight and context. And one of the things that struck me about your your comments was this idea of the of, building a fantasy world and what gaming affords young men and boys. And I think a lot about Ruha Benjamin's work around, you know, equity in, in, in tech and algorithms. And I worry about the recapitulation of the power dynamics that happen in our real world being sort of transmuted into a gaming world and how we create a space that's both brave and safe and affords an opportunity for expansion of identity and connection without recapitulating those same, you know, problems, social problems, such as racial hierarchies or gender hierarchies. So there, are, I, I know we're all saying this in, in many ways, but I just want to underscore how important it is for us to think about how those narratives and hierarchies get, you know, sort of built into the design of, the, of, of gaming. And that warrants, I think, a layer of critique and also, you know, a place that we should watch, especially because young boys are spending a lot of time in gaming situations. And, and that's such a critical period of development for the onset of these more rigid or the, the internalization, I should say, of these more rigid uh, stereotypic norms around masculinity. Yeah, um, Wisdom agreed. And, you know, I think the part that as we looked at the results of that study to think, you know, it is a place where a lot of white male violence is enacted and often enacted against people of color and the and the kind of tropes and stereotypes made in the chat space, particularly about BIPOC individuals, you know, and, and the, the same moment that we're making sense of the results and writing them up, there's another mass killing in the US, which is mostly white men. And, you know, not to mention what we're trying to make sense of and push back against and protest, um, mostly white police violence against people of color in the US. So, you know, I think we have to, we have to be careful that we don't, um, you know, not, not all gaming spaces play out in those racialized terms, but the normalization of violence in them and the kind of unquestioned, you know, suddenly I've got this bit of power and isn't that fun to sort of play at it? How do we, you know, how do we sort of help young men back into a world to say, so tell me about that? You know, I, I think a lot about the, um, you know, if we think of boys at three and four, there's a lot of playing in superhero outfits. And, you know, whether we read, depend on, you know, any child development expert talking about how those spaces become important for young children to feel a sense of power in a world that they otherwise feel powerless. You know, I, I worry that when young and adult men feel, you know, that somehow a, a lack of awareness about power they may, they may have in some settings, obviously other settings where they don't have power, but how do we, you know, is there other ways that we can use that as a conversation to say, so why is it that some men don't feel, what is it about, you know, the marginalization of certain boys and men um, and what is it about how other men have lots of power? Um, how can we get up a kind of a more critical discussion going on about that through some of the harm that we see, but also to, you know, let boys talk about what is it, what's the rush that you're getting out of the games and get them to verbalize that I think is a good step. And Gary, would you, oh, uh, Wisdom, did you want to? I was just going to say, I co-sign all of that. <laughs> I think we definitely <laughs> have to create more 
dialogue and the challenge, I think, and, and you know, as a woman in the space, and I've, you know, dealt with lots of critique around that, but I, you know, I, I'm very aware that boys and men don't receive the same amount of empathy and support around even creating a discursive space, right? Like, so even when men gather mm-hmm. or boys gather, there's always a critique about like, oh, why aren't the women being invited? <laughs> why are the men talking? Why are the boys talking by themselves? And I absolutely think that's the wrong reaction. I think that if we could create these, these spaces and forums that help boys to interrogate what they're experiencing in a gaming environment and really critique the, the game's setup, anatomy, characters, and to really have a dialogue, to really unpack the game in that way, we would learn a lot more. One about, as, as Gary and Mike would point out, what boys are getting from that experience, but also what do we need to, to improve the gaming environment so that it is equitable and that it does honor the human human diversity and experience and doesn't recapitulate social hierarchies that keep us bound in centuries and legacies of inequity, discrimination, and oppression. Yeah, that, that is a very good point. Um, I'm going to quick reminder for our new listeners. Today's discussion is on masculinity, mental health, and gaming, and is being recorded to be turned into a podcast. I'm Sheena Brevig, a CSS Junior Fellow, and I'm moderating the conversation today. For our guests, we have Dr. Gary Baker, Dr. Michael Kaufman, and Dr. Wisdom Powell, who are just incredible in the masculinity and gaming space. Um, And if anyone in the audience would like to ask a question, please feel free to raise your hand and we will bring you up on stage. And I will um, announce this again in a little bit because I do have a few more questions for these incredible speakers we have today. Wisdom, have you found, is there a way that we can get men and boys to see the importance of these narratives and fictions that push them out of the confines of traditional masculinity? I absolutely think we can and we do. And in fact, I think we don't tell enough, talk enough about those stories because we're so enamored as a society with this idea of toxic masculinity. It's become almost like pop culture and people just sort of spew it. And even in conversations where it doesn't even make sense to bring it up. And mm-hmm. so I think that we're, we, we, have, we need to move first beyond that sort of way of characterizing men and boys towards one that treats them as whole humans with a range of lived experience, emotions, and reactions. And then secondly, I think that the way that you do this, so we do a lot of work with boys, black boys in schools and in communities, and we use art and narrative and storytelling to help them reimagine manhood, boyhood, and what it means to show up in a world as a whole person. And I think that those kinds of conversations at critical and sensitive developmental time points can make a huge difference in terms of building a generation, a new generation of men and boys who actually embrace a fuller definition of what it means to be male. So yes, it's possible to, to tool and, 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 and help men and boys. And I hate the word help because it feels so missionary and I'm so not about that. But I think connect with men, work with, work with them, listen to them. You know, we do so much work about boys and men without, without boys and men. We talk about them as if like they're, you know, don't have a sense of their own gender. Men often is genderless, right? Like, so even when you have conversations with people about gender, they rarely mention men. They talk mainly about women. So I think there's a whole lot of work as a society that we have to do to even ready ourselves for embracing men and boys who dare to think about masculinity in more nuanced ways. We're complicit in sustaining those stereotypes and norms, by the way. None of us are, are like uh, out, of the, out of the range of, you know, of responsibility here because we help to sustain these stereotypes. And much in the way that Gary and Michael talked about it, masculinities are extraordinarily precarious. Men and boys have to fight and win their manhood every day from situation to situation from moment to moment and we have yet to think about their gendered lives and the gendered social arrangements in those nuanced ways so it's possible but we have to shift our attitudes and beliefs 
also as we're asking men and boys to do the same. I mean, one of the things too that is so, this is Michael, um, that I think this really follows uh, wisdom's wise words, is, is allowing us all to embrace the possibility of, you know, of contradiction within our own lives, that we, we can be critical of the norms of masculinity and what it does to, does to us all um, and, and the impact on society. And yet at the same time, still find some pleasure in some of the, you know, in, 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 in some traditional, not just pursuits, but, but sort of traditional images and forms of fantasy. So, you know, I can look forward to seeing, I don't know, a new James Bond film or something without thinking this is going to, you know, turn me into a killer. So, you know, we, we're all, I mean, as, you know, as a, as a fiction writer, and I know, you know, I think Gary probably would, would think the same thing, is, is that we, we want to, to celebrate not just, you know, we want to celebrate the, the capacity of, of boys and men and women and girls and those who don't even, you know, who don't define themselves within that, that, that binary our capacities to imagine, to fantasize, to create new worlds, to inhabit different worlds, even if it's just for, you know, for a few hours that we turn on our computer or open a book, you know, that, that, that possibility as humans to create, you know, to use our imagination to dream. I, I, I've been, um, I, I had a new book come out this year, a mystery earlier this year. And, and you know, you do all these, well, this now online events. And, you know, one of the, the questions that I, I kept getting asked, people say, well, you know, you're an activist, you've written all this nonfiction. Why would you be writing a, a mystery, you know, set in, in, in the near future? And, and part of my answer is, is that, well, it's, it's the stuff I read. Part, part of it is that, you know, shouldn't we all be dreaming of, 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 of different worlds and imagining different possibilities? And, and I think that's one, one place that, 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 that either, you know, fiction or, or games potentially takes us, that, you know, they take us in, in, a, in a wonderful way away from some of the, 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 the drudge and the, um, and the limitations that, that our society imposes on us and creates, you know, new worlds of possibilities. And that, that, gosh, isn't that worth celebrating in spite of, you know, and I think when Gary was talking about both inviting in, but also critiquing, uh, you know, if we're able to hang on to that, a balance of those things, then we can, um, I think we can joyfully, you know, we can joyfully play and joyfully read, even though we, we know that, you know, part of it is, um, you know, pulling us into a, a world of, been based on stereotypes or limitations. I was just going to echo something that that wisdom said, which is, I think, you know, even in our conversations about masculinities and wisdom was talking about the origin of the phrase toxic masculinity, which, you know, kind of in 2018, 19 sound began to sound like one word as if toxic, you know, where the C ends, the masculinity is, is part of the same word. And I think, you know, a huge amount of defensiveness. And then for all that, that the, you know, this, very important political moment around Me Too has meant a calling out. Um, it's certainly not done, and we've got lots and lots to do still to make the world safe in terms of consent and free from harassment and violence against women and girls, no question about that. But I think what, what we've been um, missing in there is in the, the kind of assuming that we will call individual men out and they will fix themselves. Um, even that falls into a gendered stereotype that, you know, men just have to take care of it on their own. Um, and I think, you know, we have shifted a lot of our work to what we still do, a lot of conversations with young and adult men to question, make sense of, find the best in humanity and how they, and, and how they talk about masculinities. Um, and to think about, you know, how it benefits themselves and others around them if they gravitate and believe in a better version of masculinity instead of one based on harm and oppression of the other. Um, but at the same time, we've got to say it's on teachers and coaches and parents and, you know, the, the content creating spaces where we make these stories. Um, we're shifting a lot of our work now to younger boys with a, got a new initiative called the Global Boyhood Initiative that tries to put out just some very simple ways that teachers, coaches, and parents can have conversations with younger boys about these issues. Um, to start them off in non-judgmental ways, to just make them um, easier to have, and particularly to get boys to 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 express themselves in a wider range of emotional language. Because as we talk to parents and as we talk to boys, kind of ages eight and up, the issue of having more expressive language 
that's not just about anger, which is kind of the easiest thing that most boys and, and young men and adult men say that they can express. You know, I think trying to open up that language to say there's a fuller, richer way that I can be connected with my emotions and my relationships with others that are not only based on, say, sex as conquest or anger as kind of the, you know, two of the flavors that many boys and young men can express the best. But how do we give to boys an access to that deeper emotional language? And I think, you know, I gravitate to fiction partly because I think it is a place that we can do that. And I think the stories and fantasy world and well-done fiction that, you know, brings to life the range of human emotions. I think if we can get boys into that space, it would be fantastic. And I don't know if, you know, anybody on the, the line wants to talk about or wisdom wants to talk about, you know, one of our challenges is watching what's happen, happening to boys in school, particularly how they're not doing well in some of the materials that, you know, where we learn the richness of, of language. If we look at, you know, even the kinds of materials that boys and men tend to consume, as fiction and storytelling, it often speaks, you know, the language of violence, oppression. Some of that can be in the form of, you know, of, of fantasy and it's playing out. But I think we also need to say, how can we, in the stories that we get into the hands of boys, get those stories that show this broader range of who, what we're capable of emotionally, expressing being um, as boys and girls and individuals of all um, gender identities. I love those comments so much, uh, Gary, because they really point to a really important point that we, I think we're all trying to underscore. And that is that the capacity to dream, reimagine, wonder, and to escape into a fantasy world is a part of what we should be cultivating in every human. Like, I think that that's important. And, and, the, and the importance of that can't not be understated for boys and, and men from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color who often are not given the space, the room to dream, to reimagine. So I highly, you know, support, the, you know, the, the building and opportunities for that to happen. And we saw, you know, a, just a, a, a little bit of what a fantasy world that really allows boys to reimagine a world could look like through Black Panther and the and the receptivity of Black communities, particularly Black boys and men, to the idea of a Wakanda and a, and an Afrofuturism that could be that could expand how they see themselves and how the world sees them. So I think that that's really really important. And as Gary mentioned, I think in schools we have a tremendous challenge with the curriculums that we set up for boys and men, for boys, you know, early in the life course, and also um, in how we think about the school environment for boys. That's a whole nother discussion, which I won't go down that rabbit hole. I'll just say this. I think that we create feminizing requirements or expectations for boys. Um, and I think this girls probably feel the same. Like we want boys to be still and quiet and stand in a line. And yet everything about the way we socialize men early in the life course rails against that. And we wonder why boys don't find a space in school where they feel comfortable and they can be themselves. And why we see so many boys, particularly black boys um, around a certain age, uh, grade and age, uh, you know, sort of losing interest in school. And I know we have some folks in the in the room who actually have um, expertise in this area. I see Elmani on the stage. Um, and I know that he has a lot to offer with respect to our thinking about schools as a, as a educator on the front line. So I'm going to leave my comments there and yield the floor uh, to the next speaker. But, but really important points are being raised here. Hi, listeners. We hope that you're enjoying this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us and share it with your friends. Your support is greatly appreciated. This conversation happened on Clubhouse. Learn about our future monthly Clubhouse events by following the Children's Tech and Media Club. Now, back to the conversation. Thank you, Wisdom. And that was the perfect transition because I was going to say, Elani, I would love to have you unmute and please go ahead and share your comment or question. Oh yeah, thank you everyone. And thank you to my sister, Dr. Wisdom Powell. I appreciate it and appreciate the segue. You, you, you know, I, I have to say when I'm hearing um, the entire conversation. I think it's been an amazingly enriched conversation. I still come back rooted to this fundamental question, and that is, 
are the challenges that we see with boys and men as it pertains to masculinity, right? The root cause or is it symptomatic? Um, Dr. Powell just talked about, for example, and I want to correlate to Dr. Powell, you know, just talked about, you know, the, the, the notion of what's happening in school systems. And then we talked about gaming and young people saying, you know, I can be myself. Well, the fundamental question is, is it really about what we need young people to do? Or is it first asking the question regarding what is it that our school systems do? What is it that our environments that render young people invisible to whereas gaming is the only place that they need to find themselves? You talked about, for example, uh, gaming going up during the pandemic. What is often missed is that when you looked at remote learning, children became simply an avatar. Sure, they were provided content. But fundamental questions that were not asked, such as, was there collaborative-based teaching going on? Were young people engaged with, you know, with the teacher? Was the teacher engaged with the young person? And many times, more times than not, the young person was simply an avatar that was there taking notes if they were having their camera on or off for anywhere between 30 to 80 minutes. But that was it, as opposed to where gaming there was collaborative-based development with friends, like-minded people, cognitive, you know, utilizing strategy, conversation, and communication, and a sense of, and this is critical when it comes to gaming, a sense of accomplishment, regardless of whether win or lose. If we won, yes, we won the game. If we, if we lost, then it was a matter of, okay, but what do we have to do next? Let's strategize back. As opposed to when you look at school systems and then you look at the failure rate, it was if you failed something, you failed. You know, if, if you didn't hand in your homework, oh, there was there's nothing else that you can do. And so that's why I think that as we're having these conversations here, and I'm just using that as an example, but saying we have to oftentimes look at the environment that that is created. And then the, the last thing I'm going to say is when we look at gaming, I, I, I caution us to look at it as some new anomaly. The reality is, is that gaming and the toxic, volatile issues that we see is nothing more than an evolution than before that. Of course, it, it's been movies, right? This 1970s horror movies. And then in the 1980s, 1990s, we had highly violent style of music. So the question then becomes, well, to what degree did someone just listen to it and enjoy it versus someone listening to it and ingraining it in themselves? And a lot of times that is rooted into what life was like for them. And this is my last thing. We cannot overstate the reality of survival. This stuff is nice. Do not get me wrong. But we cannot overstate. Is the young person coming up? Have they been told by their parents at the age of nine that they're the man of the house? Have they witnessed a system that has totally dehumanized and emasculated them? And so if they're coming up to whereas the adults, the environment, the socioeconomic system, the political system has cast them off, then where is the space for them to be what they really want to be when it's the adults in the room or the environment that's actually taking that away? So sure, we want better masculinity and kids open up and young men open up. And, you know, Dr. Powell knows my work for many years that is on boys and especially young men of color they will open up but the environment indeed has to be there and so as you do your research i don't think you can do one in terms of being focused on what boys need to do without also looking and yes indicting the system that adults have created the environment that does not allow boys to be boys thank you Thank you so much for all of that really relevant and important information. I guess I would love to jump to the three of you, Gary, Michael, and Wisdom, and ask, so we're, you know, um, Elmani just talked about the environment. How can parents talk to their kids about masculinity, toxic masculinity, maybe in general, but maybe also in the games they play? Um, this is Gary. I'll, I'll jump in. Elmani, absolutely agree with you that, you know, we've got to look at the 
we've got to look at what is the space that that boys and particularly boys of color have in the U.S. in terms of you know the the narrow scripts that are that are written the the punitive nature of their first relationships often with school and what happens in school as well as in public spaces. I think you you know articulated extremely well the issue of you know what space is offered to me, um, and how much we see you know young men filling in that space. That's the narrow space that we've left. Just you know the anything that we're calling toxic um, is a result of that system for the most part, not you know on the young man himself. And so I absolutely agree with you. And I think, you know, there is this mixture of how do we indict a school system that doesn't create more equitable spaces, that's not paying attention to this, that that has, you know, whether we look at overcrowded classrooms or not enough attention to the kind of joint and shared learning that you talked about before that I think is is vital that it's there. How do we learn to do things together, not just the sit in your cubicle and do it on your own? How do we indict the you know the lack of resources that are given particularly to to lower income neighborhoods in this country and we know the spin-off of all of that so i think yeah, as we talk about masculinities within that space i think it's important that we not say we can resolve all of this if we just got masculinities better i think to you know to look at it across issues of historic racism and racial inequalities to look at um, systemic problems in our school system our over penalization and particularly the you know our our early application of juvenile justice in horrible ways that of course ends up in our prison systems later on you know i think to yeah we've got to be careful that it's not only a conversation about masculinities that will resolve this one of the facilitators a, a young man of color who worked with us in dc said you know i think it's important to think about it this way he said you know if i look for you know for white guys our, you know, toxic masculinity is like a bad cold. If I'm a if I'm a man of color, for me, it's the flu, if not pneumonia, and it could kill me. And I think that that understanding of how we see those layers um, and really hold the system accountable, and not say that it's an individual young man who's going to solve this or his parents by themselves. Point well taken. And you know, Shauna, to your point, I think we've got to have the meaningful conversations that happen, but they can't again be alone between parents and and their sons and daughters. Um, how do we engage with the systems that we're obviously going to be in between the workplace and school and elsewhere? So um, really some great points, Omani. I wanted to just reinforce that. Could, could I, I wonder if I could jump in on, on this. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, when you raise the question about, well, what can parents do? For, for, for me, it, it's, it's, it can't just start off with a conversation. I mean, I would hope if it's, if it's a home where if there is a, uh, if it's a household with a man and a woman, uh, that the parents have been modeling uh, respect, equality in the jobs that they do in the home and in how they talk to each other, how they treat each other. And so that when you sit down and, and, and watch a program with, um, you know, a TV show or, or play a game with, with in this case, uh, your, your son or your daughter, it doesn't matter, um, you're able to both just enjoy the fantasy level, but also engage them with some reality check, um, and and be able to to you know to see how the images that they are consuming and they're consuming products that are created by adults. I mean, even though it's an environment that becomes a, a, a you know as Alani was saying a second ago, and I love that you know this this collaborative problem solving environment for for boys or young men. Uh, it is also working within an environment created by adults and largely adult men. Um, but um, so, you know, I think that, that partly it's, it's any conversation has got to flow from a shifted reality within, within our homes. Um, and then, you know, the, it, and, and kids get things, kids get contradictions. I, me I remember, I mean, a story that I, I could tell from years and years ago, uh, my son who's now 40, uh, but when he was, um, you know, it was like grade six or something, we had rented a video, this, I mean video, this was back in the days when you actually rented the video machine, um, you know, the VCR uh, to, to play the damn thing. Anyway, we're about to, to sit down and, you know, put in this whatever movie we had rented. And he, and he looked at me and said, Dad, can we just watch this one? And I said, what, what do you mean just watch it? I mean, we're going to watch it. He said, no. He said, what I mean is you don't have to tell me every time it's racist and sexist and homophobic. Let's just, <laughs> en let's just enjoy it this time. And, and you know, he'd, he'd, he's basically telling me, I get it now. Um, just let me, you know, let me cruise through this one on the level of fantasy. But it also showed me that he had developed critical skills for for playing that sort of double game that any of us play in our society when we're when you know when we 
when we consume so many different movies and games and books, uh, you know, we, we are we are we are playing within a world of contradiction, and and that's you know I think that's part of it. I want to go back to 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 one thing that Isid El Nani used, and I think it was a phrase he used directly, or at least it, it's what conjured up in my mind. He used I think he used the, or it suggested to me that he used the word powerlessness, and I think that one of the things that that it just is what our society is about, whether it's at school or in 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 our families. The, certainly, the experience of young people is powerlessness. You know, patriarchal societies have developed over the past eight, 10,000 years as societies where men have power over women, um, some men have power over other groups of men, adults have power over children, and humans supposedly have power over nature. And we see where the, the latter, that latter point is getting us. And, and so I think that this, the powerlessness is reflected through all of our institutions. And so even you know, at, at, you know, at wonderful schools, it's still based on models of you know, adults having power over children. And and I think that that if we want to if we want to you know just keep stepping back and taking a bigger and bigger and bigger picture, I, I think that part of the challenge to to patriarchy is challenging the these hierarchies of power, and particularly when we think of young people and and the, the attraction of 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 creating a fantasy world in this case through gaming, but it could be through many other things. It, it's that we we create we do create worlds that are profoundly disempowering, particularly for young people, but also through for particular groups of men or particular groups of women, and and so I think that our that our challenge has to be um, uh, to 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 challenge that disempowerment, but not just through establishing another group within that confines of power. You know, when, when I you know it's it's not just about you know for example women leaning in and learning to play the man's game. I think it's it's about you know dismantling that traditional man's game, uh, and 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 understanding we can do it differently. And that's again you know perhaps is where 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 the world whether whatever media it is where where fantasy can play that role because it gives us can help us create spaces where we can dream and we can imagine and we can create something different. Thank you, Michael. I and this has turned into just an amazing systemic conversation. I know we only have a few more minutes left and I want to be respectful of everyone's time. So I did want to get to Greg's question. Greg, please feel free to unmute. Oh, no, no problem. Thank you for bringing me up too. Um, what's up? Uh, Wisdom Elmani. Good to see y'all, hear y'all and everyone else. I, I think uh, before I even state the question, I think um, it's this I'm listening to this conversation and I, I constantly think about being human first. And I, I think that's what's also missing is like, especially black boys, black men, that is definitely missing. There is a, a sense of dehumanization that happens and it's baked into the system. It's baked into the culture of America. Um, and then you can, you can say and point towards patriarchy, but as you can read in Bell Hook's book, We Real Cool is how much damage patriarchy has done to the black male, period. Um, I know a little man. Um, so something I'm I'm like really working on is just looking at, you know, more like a, the concept of like yin and yang. Like what is masculine energy and what is feminine energy? And thinking about it from that perspective. And and what you see in, uh, in that practice is you may have aggressiveness, assertiveness. Those things may be seen as masculine. And then if you if you look at creativity, uh, surrender, uh, um, you know, any of those things can be seen as feminine. And there's nothing wrong with them. There's definitely nothing wrong with them, because um, I've definitely seen, and if you look at it from that framework, I've seen, you know, women and non-binary identifying folk be be somewhat extremely masculine, right? And that could be connected to trauma, connected to a desire for safety, connected to creating a better path for themselves. And so I'm, I, I, the way I've been really, really looking at it, because the toxic masculinity thing just it became extremely overwhelming. It became uh, less nuanced and more groupthink. Um, a lot of people didn't want to unpack it anymore. And, and, and then I think about David R. Hawkins, his book, this guy's a metaphysicist, but he was like a master physician. He was a master physics, a physicist. And um, he talks about power and force, whereas though power is more about grace and allowing and seeing things through and trusting your skill, trusting your talent. Whereas though force is when you see resistance, but you still try to move through it. And so I urge people to, you know, put another path in this conversation. Check out Power Versus Force by David R. Hawkins. Um, my question for the room is, being as though, you know, gaming 
is creating and triggering a lot of opportunity for imagination to activate. You know, what are some of the mental health challenges that may be coming down the pipeline that could be just in general for for all all boys and men? So I, I know Gary probably has a perspective on this question because he's written um, on this topic, but I will say this. I think like any form of escape, escape is supposed to be a temporary uh, state of, of, of activity or action, right? Like we, if we all escape all the time from the realities that are and the, and the responsibilities uh, that we have, then, then you could see how that could spiral into something that could be non-productive and unhealthy. And so like any, I mean, we do have people who are addicted to gaming. So that's a real thing. And I, guarding against that is going to be really important as we think about the potential mental health challenges, but also like the, the exposure to violent imagery and media has been studied and published on for decades and generations. I don't know what the current literature says about violence and gaming exposure, perhaps Gary can speak to that, but I think we have to be mindful. And I think, you know, what I was going to say earlier in with, to that, I guess is kind of related, is, is this idea of how do we create a space where boys can interrogate what they're experiencing. And media literacy and co-viewing, it has been a, a really important strategy that we've used for sort of more uh, routine or general media, but we haven't really applied that perspective or that, that those techniques to gaming. And I think that there's room for that to dismantle um, what they're experiencing and talk about it. We used to do these music video, hip hop music video biopsies with young boys in Durham County, where we would have them interrogate the images without sound or lyrics. We wanted them to, to look at what they were being exposed to and unpack it. And let me tell you, these little boys blew us away. They understood exactly what was happening in that imagery and could unpack it and distill it in ways that we weren't quite even sure they could. So to Michael's point, our children are capable of critically viewing things, but they need our support, but not the kind of support that powers over, but powers with them and helps them to experience firsthand what it feels like to, to be able to articulate a reality uh, to an adult and have that adult receive it. Like we, we can't underestimate the impact of that. And I'm going to mute myself because I know we're right at nine o'clock, but thank you. Thank you so much, Wisdom, for kind of clarifying around co-viewing, and that was what Michael described doing with his son, and that there is space for that in the the gaming world to kind of co-game almost. Um, I do want to be respectful of everyone's time, but I have one last little question. Gary, Michael, and Wisdom, if you have an answer, are there any games that you feel are doing a better job um, at addressing masculinity? It's a It's a big question. But curious to hear if you have any recommendations. I mean, certainly some of the, the you construct the universe. So whether we, you know, if we look at some of those where you're, you're co-building and, and where the function is not necessarily to, to use violence against others, there's a lot of the gaming space that is about that, that is about you're, you're building the universe and building a world. And I think those, you know, I'm not going to name any names of, of some of them, but I think those that offer that kind of creativity rather than, you know, we go straight into it's about, you know, kill or be killed kinds of games. There's a huge number of them out there that are about that world building. And I think, you know, those kinds of inspirations where you get to try out different versions of yourself and play around with them, those can be quite empowering. And I, you know, I think particularly to use, you know, Wisdom's concept of, of co-viewing, if we're doing that with others and there's somebody who can call you in when, you know, hey, that wasn't, that wasn't necessarily cool or had you thought about it this way, I think that kind of dialogue space to, um, you know, to try on different ways of being who we want to be toward being our, you know, the best versions of our human selves is a good thing. So I'm not going to name any, but I think those that allow that kind of creativity are the ones that I would say, you know, parents and sons and daughters can figure out which ones of those work for them. Very diplomatic answer, Gary. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Michael, I don't know if you wanted to chime in really quick before I wrap up. No, I mean, I, I would have tried to, an answer something like that as well. So I'll, I'll defer to, to wisdom on this. I, I you know, I'm, I, I'm still waiting for the games based on, 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 on my, 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 my novels and they haven't come out yet. So I, I just can't recommend them. <laughs> Um, but no, let, let me just pass on that one. 
but this has been really fun being part of this. Thank you. And I, I also will just defer and say that stating some of the suggestions and conversations that we've been having around systems change. I think the conversation, the next conversation isn't about like what, you know, what you would recommend or what would be, but a conversation with the, the developers, the funders, the people who create the ecosystem of gaming. And really, as Greg pointed out, calling into question whether or not we're exploring the range of human humanity in these spaces in the ways that best reflect the best of us. And that, I mean, when we shift those thinkers and those leaders, then the world of gaming will cease to, to perhaps have as much of what we have been calling out in this conversation, much of those more negative images and norms recapitulated and hierarchies recapitulated. Like this change can only happen if we changed who's developing and designing, how we're coding in equity into those games, and that we really hold people accountable when they transgress. That's what a new world of masculinity and gaming and, and better mental health would, would yield. That's what would yield that, I think. Well put, wisdom. That concludes this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. A very special thanks to our wonderful guests, Dr. Gary Barker, Dr. Michael Kaufman, and Dr. Wisdom Powell, and our moderator, Sheena Brevig. If you have a minute, rate and review us. And if you have any friends you think would like the show, share it with them. If you are interested in learning more about our work, please visit us at scholarsandstorytellers.com and follow our social media accounts by searching Scholars and Storytellers. This podcast was produced by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, with special thanks to Jim Ols for creating the intro music, the UCLA Film School, Nira Liebenthal, Annie Myers, Dr. Colleen Russo-Johnson, and Jeremy Shane. Goodbye for now, and thank you for listening.